Before we get into today's episode, Ella, we should mention that later this week, on Wednesday, November 15th, to be precise, our annual Letterboxd sale starts. So if you've been wanting to upgrade to pro or patron, once this sale begins, you can do it for 20% off. Mia, this is going to be a huge couple of days. You know how much I love all of the features that come with being a pro and patron member. Um, For one thing, there are no third-party ads, which I don't think I need to sell to anyone else whatsoever. Um, But also, our patrons get custom posters. I actually wrote about this when the feature came in for our editorial platform journal and really dug into how much we're all obsessed with the art of movie posters, which is still and always true. Pro and patrons also get stats, which I love. And I've said this to you, and I'm still trying to figure out why I check my stats after every single log. Nobody knows why. And Mia, what do you use most as a paid member? Oh, girl, I understand you about obsessive (laughs) stat checking. I am a fiend for stats, especially the most watched actors and directors section. Knowing for a fact that I have seen 31 Colin Farrell movies helps me sleep at night, genuinely. I have also customized all of my posters so that his face is on every one, even if he is not the lead. So this is all very normal behavior that you too can engage in. You too can engage in this behavior very soon. As a reminder, the sale is starting Wednesday, November 15th, and it will end Friday, November 17th. This gives you enough time to rest and sleep well tonight and count your pennies, and also enough time to rest and count your remaining pennies after making the most of these beautiful, beautiful discounts in the weekend that follows, and all the ones after that. Woohoo! I'm Matt Singer, and you're listening to The Letterboxd Show. I'm here to talk about my four favorite films. Los Angeles Plays Itself, something I'm not as familiar with that says it's named Jim Cotta, Steely Dan, Asia, and The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Hello and welcome to The Letterbox Show. It's November, the leaves have changed, but our goals remain the same. We're going to be talking with someone about their four favorite films. Alongside me this week is editorial producer Brian Formo. And if you guessed one of the movies we're planning to talk about is Jim Cotta, you're obviously correct. Buckle up, Brian. That's right, Slim. Today, we're speaking with not only the editor and critic at Screen Crush, but the writer of a brand new book about Siskel and Ebert, Opposable Thumbs. Uh, We are finally going to get into a little chat about two of the most famous, most formative film critics in all of film history. But first, Matt Singer, welcome (laughs) to the Letterboxd Show. I thought you were going to say me, and then I was like, who's the other person? But oh yeah, Siskel and Ebert, I guess that's true. Fine, okay, fair. (laughs) Amazing. We finally are getting into Siskel and Ebert, I think. I'm not even sure if we've really ever talked about it on the podcast, but I was listening to your book this past week. And one of the first things I thought of, you know, they they worked together. They did the show over the course of like 25 years. Can you imagine podcasting with someone for 25 years? I mean, there's there's probably some people that are going to start to get to that milestone. Not not too far off. I mean, That's, oh my god, film spotting has been around since the mid 2000s. They, I was I was a guest at their like 20th anniversary show not that long ago. Right. And I know you know that there's been different co-hosts, but the original co-host is still like the producer Sam. 
is still involved with the uh, with the show all these years later with Adam Kempinar. So, I mean, yeah, it's that's not that far off in the future. 25 years of certain podcasts, which is uh, as someone who remembers hearing that word for the first time podcast, it is that is one of the most nauseating and horrifying facts <laughs> that exist is to know that we're not that far off from 25 years of podcasts. Well, and if we look at Letterboxd as an extension of movie message boards, I've been doing that for 25 years. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. Plus, yes. yeah. yeah. Yeah, longer for me. I mean, the mid 90s. I mean, yeah, I was exactly on AOL same. looking at I mean, the Seinfeld message. Yeah, AOL, yes, message boards for like, I don't know if there was a Siskel and Ebert board on AOL, but I definitely wasted a lot of time in Seinfeld chat rooms, Seinfeld trivia rooms. <laughs> Nothing better than the AOL Seinfeld trivia room. Couldn't stump yep. me in there, I could promise The average you. letterbox user listening to this episode would be like, what the F are these two, what are these yes. three olds talking about? Yes. AOL keywords? AOL? Even- <laughs> Owl? <laughs> They're not even going to Google that. They're too afraid to see what kind of Google results would come from these searches. Come over, young children. I, Lend me your ears and I'll tell you the tale of America Online. <laughs> Do you remember your first introduction to Siskel and Eber, Brian? Do you remember, like, did you watch the show way back when? I, I watched it on occasion. It wasn't. It always changed the time that it was on. It was actually hard to keep keep up uh, with the syndication there. But the way that I engaged with Siskel and Ebert is, um, I mean, I would see what they gave two thumbs up, but then I would wait to see. I grew up in Boise, Idaho. I would wait for the Friday uh, paper to see what Michael Deeds if he agreed with Siskel and Ebert. So I kind of always mm. use them as. Um, like it was a cross examinations with, and then as I started to read Entertainment Weekly and Rolling Stone and stuff like that, they kind of uh, were, were the people that I would use to like, um, yeah, to cross examine other critics, and that was my main relationship with them for a start. I've read way more Ebert than Siskel, I, I will admit. Yeah, I wonder if that's the same for the kind of general mainstream audience. When I was growing up, I think my first you know, knowledge of movie critics was probably listening to the radio in Philadelphia, like on 610, where somebody would come in and give their their movie critic review in 30 seconds. I'm not, I can't remember if that was Gene Shout or someone else, but I just remember thinking to myself, man, how do you get that job? You come into the radio station for 30 seconds a day and you give a movie review and you go home. <laughs> that's like, in my head, that's what the movie critic did. It's like the Krusty uh, the Clown bit where he comes in and says all 17 of his lines and then walk. hey, 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 I'm Krusty the Clown. All right, I'm yeah. out of here. You know, that. The producer wasn't even recording exactly. for Krusty. Exactly. <laughs> he didn't even go to tell him until he left. Yes. So we'll get into Matt's uh, further thoughts on Siskel and Ebert, but uh, Brian mentioned growing up in Boise, but you're currently in L.A., and that's the focus of our first movie, Los Angeles Plays Itself from 2003. Tom Anderson currently has a 4.1 average on Letterboxd. The synopsis of this movie, from its distinctive neighborhoods to its architectural homes, Los Angeles has been the backdrop to countless movie. In this dazzling work, Anderson takes viewers on a whirlwind tour through the metropolis' real and cinematic history, investigating the myriad stories and legends that have come to define it and meticulously, judiciously revealing the real city that lives beneath. So Matt, what is, what's your connection to Los Angeles and, and how did you come to watch this for the first time? Uh, I have zero connection to Los Angeles. I've never lived there. I've visited there a bunch of times, but um, I don't have any personal connection to it. I saw this movie for the first time. 
I believe when it played at the Film Forum in New York City here, um, that would have been in the mid-2000s. I'm not sure the exact year, but I'm sure if we figured, you know, if we did some research, we could figure out it was like the first time it had played in New York. Um, And I was either in grad school here or had just graduated. It was in that time period. And um, I think... At that point, I think maybe I had read a review about it in the Village Voice, perhaps, um, from probably from Jim Hoberman, who I also had around that same time as a professor. I was lucky enough wow. uh, to have uh, him teach a, a film criticism seminar, actually, that I was um, a student in. And so I know he was a fan of it. I don't remember if I read about it. Maybe he talked about it in class. But in any event, it was on my radar that way. And I went to see it in the theater, which I'm sure not too many people have uh, seen it that way. You know, nowadays it's, you know, it's for a while you couldn't see it at all after that. It played in the theater and it was then it was kind of this thing that was like this very cool object that kind of became almost like an underground film in a way because it was never released on home video. It's made up of all these clips of dozens and hundreds of movies. So it was sort of a weird thing. And I don't know, I I think it's been released now, maybe in some form on home video. I think I I rented this. Well, not rented. I don't know what the heck you call it, but I borrowed it from my local library. Like it's on Canopy currently, I believe. Right, right, right which is a cool site. So, okay, there are ways to watch it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was able to see it in a movie theater, which was a very cool um, experience. And um, I just thought it was really cool. And it felt to me like, you know, again, this is the early or maybe mid 2000s. So YouTube does not exist. You know, forget about AOL message boards. We're still talking about a world where YouTube doesn't exist. So YouTube video essays do not exist. And at the time watching it, I was like, this is something new and exciting. And I would watch a movie like this about any subject because I'm just so movie crazy. And it's like, if you are a movie fan and you enjoy, now if you enjoy YouTube video essays and those sorts of things, this this is really a wonderful uh, object. You know, it's like my, my uh, friend Rumsey Taylor who works for the New York Times and he's on Letterboxd. The last time I rewatched this movie, I looked at his review and it was so perfectly stated. I didn't even attempt to kind of, I just gave him credit and I wrote what he wrote, which is that it's the, this is this movie, Los Angeles plays itself is the best movie review you will ever watch. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a very lovely way of putting it because it is this sort of long form work of film criticism in the form of like a three hour or however long it is, tour of Los Angeles as it's been uh, shown in movies, either as playing itself, as the title suggests, or as, you know, being used in movies that are set anywhere else, but real recognizable L.A. landmarks or neighborhoods or diners or anything from Los Angeles, you know, how it appears in different movies. And I just think uh, it's, 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 a, it's, if you're, I mean, if you're interested in film enough to listen to the letterbox show. I feel like it's the mm-hmm. sort of thing you might get a lot out of because it like sort of just, I remember when I saw it the first time, it really kind of just opens your eyes to looking at movies beyond just, well, who, what's it about? What's the story? And who are the characters? Like here's a movie that's like about all the things that are kind of invisible in other movies 
the setting, where a place is, the geography, how different locations in one movie might connect to another, how different locations in m- different movies connect to to yeah. one another. Um, and it's just, I, I sort of always, I've never attempted to do anything like this, but I've always in the back of my mind w- hoped that someday I could make something, not exactly like this, but something that's kind of this comprehensive and knowledgeable and insightful and like witty. Um, it's sort of all the things that I aspire to in my own work and fail pretty consistently, I would say, but aspire to nonetheless. I, um, this is actually a first time watch for me. I'd seen isolated clips um, before, but I'd never watched the whole thing in entirety. So I have lived in uh, Los Angeles. It's two stints. It's non-consecutive, but for nine years. I just have to put up top because I know that this will get a slim slim going. But um, my my wife works in the Bradbury building, which is he- heavily featured in this, particularly around Blade Runner. Whenever I go uh, drop something off at, or pick her up from, from, from downtown from there, there's always like people in the lobby taking photos up at that giant uh, skylight. Um, but I was, when I was watching that, cause it is fun to occasionally see that building in, in films, not expecting it. I was waiting. It was like, is he going to show Wolf? Is he going to show Wolf? Because Wolf is actually my, my, my wife's office. Jack Nicholson's office in that movie wow. is, my, is my wife's office. And I recognize it by the fireplace. So that was, um, and I know, I, I know, I mean, I mean, we, do we all, do we all love Blade Runner. The, the, that actually was one of my my main points was just how bonkers what he was able to do in Blade Runner with those sets, like those existing locations, because they show those locations in Blade Runner in those clips, and then they'll show you know other movies that use those same locations, and it's like, damn, the production design of that movie. Like, obviously, everyone knows Blade Runner production design is great, but like, it's just crazy to see what other teams are able to accomplish with those sets and me like i don't have the kind of history with la um outside of really these movies so i i think that when i asked matt earlier like your connection to la i guess really we do all have a a big connection to la through film if we don't personally physically have that connection to la so rewatching all these movies you know i was kind of stunned like how many of these sets are in so many famous movies there was one i think it was the pan am that they showed in one scene that was like eventually torn down, I started to get like angry at all of these gorgeous locations that were not conserved and saved and restored over time. They looked fantastic. They, what, I think it was the Pan Am. It had that like art deco design. It reminded me of so many designs from Batman the Animated Series that were all in Gotham City. Also, I think the Goodyear plant was another one that was just like, oh my God, like this the footage of these areas are just so gorgeous. So... Some of it was actually kind of depressing to me that we don't have like the forethought to save some of this stuff. So I'm glad that like most of these locations are still there. But if anything, architecturally, it's a delight to go through and see these places like that. So it's kind of like maybe I need to go back to LA to visit some of this stuff. Maybe I'm the guy, the guy in that you know in Brian's wife's building taking those photos of the skylight next next time. Yeah, and I, I like the idea as he as uh, the narrator. The, you know, it's not actually Tom Anderson, but he's speaking like as if he was Tom Anderson. The idea that, you know, that there is almost a documentary quality to any film. It's a document of, to your point, like some places that no longer exist, but they exist forever as these 
fictional spaces in these movies. And sometimes they're dressed up or made to look less like what they are. And sometimes you're just seeing what the Bradbury building looked like in 1955 or in 1982 or whatever it might be. And again, that, that like I said, it really, it makes, I just enjoy the way it makes you think about very, sometimes very familiar movies um, in a different way. And then on the mm-hmm. flip side, it also, intri- you know, if you, there's a lot of movies that I'm sure I had never even heard of, much less seen when I watched Los Angeles plays itself for the first time. And you can walk away with it with a list of movies to go watch, you know, like it certainly, you know, like, uh, I'm, I'm, I would assume most people listening have, have watched Blade Runner, but there's going to be movies in there that you're going to watch the movie. If you watch Los Angeles plays itself, you'll go, boy, this movie looks really good. And then you'll, you'll, you'll be off on another cinematic adventure. You know, if you've never seen like Kiss Me Deadly, you will want to see Kiss Me Deadly after Los Angeles plays itself because it, the mm-hmm. movie not only shows uh, the movie being Los Angeles plays itself, we're getting meta and confusing here. It, um, <laughs> it, it, it just it makes the it just makes the movie look fabulous. It makes the locations look fabulous, but it makes this really interesting case for that movie where it's like, well, not only is this a wonderful noir and all these sorts of things, it's one of the most accurate LA movies ever made. Like all the places that seem to exist in this movie, they're the real places. You know, they're going to real locations. This mm-hmm. address is real. This this building is real. And when they drive this place, it, you know what I mean? Like it it. Again, speaking to the documentary kind of aspect to certain films, some have more of that than others. And yeah, you'll walk away with a great list of other movies to watch as well. We were talking about movies with strong points of view. I mean, there's no other movie with a stronger point of view than Jim Cotta from 1985, I feel like. Robert Klaus, 1.7 average on Letterboxd right now. You know, we don't need to focus on that necessarily. Look, people people make mistakes. Everybody's human. <laughs> That's the beauty of this thing, folks. We're all human. We're all getting through this together. That's right. Uh, And we can all get through it together with the skill of gymnastics and the kill of karate. U.S. agents send a gymnastic martial artist to secure a missile base site in the savage country of Parmistan. Made up, obviously, for this film. What? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll have to check my uh, my globe uh, in the uh, check my atlas atlas. in the reading room of this house. Uh, Take you know everyone loves talking Jim Cotta with Max. Take us back. Take us back. People love talking about Jim (laughs) Cotta. Take us back to that first viewing. Do you remember it viscerally when you hit play on Jim Cotta for the first time? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say, you know, the, the idea that we're doing, you know, like if someone is listening and wondering, like, are these really my four favorite movies ever? <laughs> well, in this case, it, the yes, it, they are. But in in generally, I like, you know, like I love to change the my four. I feel like now people you don't need like, to explain yourself ever on this I show. Want to Matt explain, no, I want to explain because if people by the time people listen to this, if they listen to this episode three months from now. None of them, if they look at my, they might be all different. I change them at whim. Sometimes I change them weekly. Um, and sometimes I have weird reasons to change them. Sometimes I make them all alphabetical. Sometimes I I, they, I make all the posters the same color. Mm. Uh, in this case, when I made this these four, which I've actually kept for a while because I actually like this four quite a bit. It was, I was looking for um, movies that didn't have a lot of, uh, f- is it fans because I realized yeah. that that thing where you, when you click on a movie, I never understood I uh, what what it, when it says next where it says ratings, it says fans. I never knew what it meant, and then I looked it up, and it was okay. It's people who have it in their four favorites, 
And so then I got kind of curious about like, what are my favorite movies that have the least number of fans? And could I make a list of those? And so here, like all of these movies have like less than 500 fans on, uh, on Letterboxd. <laughs> so that is, the, that's the reason for these four at this particular time. Not that I dislike, you know, that I don't love any of them. I love all mm -hmm. of them and I have different reasons to love all of them. But that is, that was the, uh, that, that's, that's where, that's how we arrived at this four. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also, uh, you know, as a, like, as a patron of the website, you know, you can have the, the picture is at the top. And so I've changed, yeah. I've experimented with different movies just because I like seeing the movie at the top. So for a while I had playtime up there because the image from playtime was really beautiful. Um, and the image from Gymkata, which is one I have right now is also quite beautiful. And it is an image of Kurt Thomas, um, kicking that someone. Leg. In the village Sheesh. of the crazies, uh, you know, uh, AKA uh, pure cinema, as pure as it gets, pure <laughs> uncut. distilled, uncut cinematic vision. But in, in getting back to your question, the first time I ever saw it, um, I had a uh, a group of, of buddies that I hung out with all through high school, college, you know, after college, where I grew up in New Jersey, where we would get together a lot and watch bad movies. And um, at one of the very first ones, someone had, and I believe it was my buddy Chris Moreno, had procured a VHS copy of this movie. And it brought the house down. And mm -hmm. we all agreed it was not a bad movie at all. It was a masterpiece. And uh, it's, it's been, I've kept it very close to my heart ever since. I, th I feel like all of us have that kind of run where we start watching "Quote unquote bad movies at a young age, and it, it becomes kind of like a visceral memory. I the one thing that jumps to mind is I always remember making fun of Hard Target with Jean Claude Ugh. Van Damme and having like a really bad time. And then I rewatched it like last year. I got the 4K, and I was like, you know what? This movie rocks. Mm. Like it's not a you know you can have fun with bad movies. Bad movies can be really entertaining. I think I gave that five stars on a recent viewing of Hard Target. You know you have an amazing time. So much of my you know letterbox rating is like, what's my experience watching this movie? Did I have like a lot of fun? You know I know people all rate and and do their four faves differently, but if I have a great time watching a movie, you know easy five stars could be. I don't hold back on those five stars. Brian, do you hold back on a five star? Well, you held back on the Jim Cotta rating because that it's it's a two point seven average, not a one point oh seven. Just, how dare you impugn? <laughs> I'll do a little strip, drop. I'll how do dare you strip away a full point? <laughs> I mean, it sounded right to me. It's a one point seven. Oh, you owe Robert Klaus an apology. <laughs> Rob, we'll get Robert. Well, we'll email the Robert. Say you're state. sorry to Bob. Two point seven, folks. Okay. <laughs> yeah, two point seven. I mean, two point seven is when you're getting into the recommendable side of things. I think two and a half is like, yeah, this is this is worth your time. Right. You're near the three star threshold. Um, hard hard target, I think, is an action masterpiece. So I'm mm -hmm. I'm glad that you came 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 around on that. Um, what was the question? <laughs> Did you? <laughs> Why is Jim Cotta the best movie ever made? I think was the question. Brian's dancing around the question. He knew what the question was. He doesn't want to answer it. What's your favorite scene out of Jim Cotta, Brian? Oh, I mean, it was it was with the crazies. I liked it best when it was using gymnastics and like in, in Silent Hill or Resident Evil. Yeah, like that yes. was that was. And I definitely was not a, 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 ex expecting that. I kind of wish there, no? there was a little more. Uh, 
creepy, keep creepy throughout because that was great. And I loved how they put some thought into like what could be a pummel horse in this scene. Um, they sure did. And uh, yeah, so I mean, that was by far my favorite. I thought it, <laughs> this was one of the weirdest uh, make a wish plots because it's for it's he's making a wish for the government. Like he doesn't even get anything out of this. It's what <laughs> it's, it's just that the government gets to put satellites. So the eighties films with like cold war, I mean, wild. It's just like every, every, every B movie plot is just something, something in that realm. I mean, what did James Bond get out of his MI6 work? You know, outside of many women and et cetera. That was his job. He, he's, he's, yeah. a, he's, in, he's on her majesty's secret service. Uh, right. Kurt Thomas is on, you know, Her Majesty's pommel horse. Like he should be, he's he's drawn into service almost like being a CIA agent is a hereditary job. His father <laughs> right. is working for the CIA and, and seemingly dies. Spoiler alert, he doesn't somehow die from something that absolutely should kill him. And then mm-hmm. spoiler alert again, he should die a second time in the movie and somehow survives again. He may possibly be a Highlander. I can't confirm that, but I've always suspected <laughs> that that perhaps he is. But yeah, he's recruited uh, for this assignment with no qualifications whatsoever. <laughs> His father is a CIA agent and he's a gymnast. And they say, we want you to infiltrate this I, until you mentioned it, I always thought very real country of Parmesan. <laughs> um, and we want you to go there and you are going to enter the game. And they say that no, no outsider has, has entered this country in, I think, 900 years, something like that, and lived. But they all have so much information about they the game. They have so much information about <laughs> the game. They have more See, intel than anything. Yes, they know exactly what the game is. And then they have, then he has to be trained for the game almost all of which is completely useless. They, you know, there's like a, the training montage includes like this guy who's like, okay, now watch me. And he's like holding a Falcon on his arm. There's no Falcons in this movie. There's no reason to have a Falcon. He doesn't train him in falconry. Uh, Then he uses these like weapons, like with like, they almost look like um, scythes. It yeah. doesn't come up again. There's no reason to, no. to, to it's just, it's just like, what can you do with things? Uh, Mr. Stuntman. Okay. Now do it on camera. And that's, I mean, the I mean, back, back flips he was doing too. Remember where she was ignoring him? He would yes, ask a question. Yes, Princess Rubali, who oh my does it, who's like their inside man. She's the princess of Parmistan. And she's sort of like their informant, um, except she doesn't speak. And so how, what possible uh, insights could they, they're like, well, no one's ever survived the game. If you go to Parmistan to enter this game, where you can win a, just just speaking these words i sound like a psychopath i sound like a right. lunatic just trying to describe these things <laughs> but if you go to parmistan kurt thomas olympic gymnast turned cia spy if you go to parmistan and you win the game something no one has ever done in 900 years you'll get your wish and you can wish for us on our behalf <laughs> to put up a spy satellite uh on the soviet union that will help us win the cold war and the only reason you're going to win where everyone else failed is that we have Princess Rupali, and she's going to tell you how to win, but she doesn't ever speak. So what possible, what help is she going to be? And then later in the movie, of course, she starts speaking for no reason. Why she wasn't speaking and then why she starts speaking, not made clear. So th- what I'm trying to say is, Gymkata <laughs> is a movie of many mysteries. You can you can study <laughs> it. You can, you'll never reach bottom. Um, <laughs> no. And what I, what I also love about it is, you know, as I'm describing it, I do sound crazy. 
and it is crazy, and there are elements of it that make no sense and are baffling. But it also has, you know, it was directed by Robert Klaus, who was a very efficient uh, action director. He directed Enter yeah, the Dragon. Yeah, he made some decent movies. He knew how to use a camera. He, the action in the movie is is clear. You can clearly see what is happening. It's just what is happening is like from another dimension. <laughs> a dimension where Parmistan is a country and no one has won the game in 900 years. And it all makes sense in that direction. Mm-hmm. Having a village of the crazies where everyone is crazy. Sure. Okay. You know, like in, in that world where the movie is, it makes it makes perfect sense. It's just in our corner of the multiverse, it does not. But I will never stop trying to to make sense of it. <laughs> My favorite scene is probably the dude with the fake face on the back sure. of his head. Yeah. Obviously a classic. I also do love when he gets recruited. It's almost like not insane that he's being recruited in that scene because he, because he is a gymnast, it's almost assumed that he can easily transition into being a top secret operative. And sure. He's, he's like looking at a map. He's able to pinpoint strategic ideas. It's It's amazing. That's what we. That's what happens in in real life, right? We right. when after people conclude their Olympic careers, they're immediately inducted into the CIA. And also, I mean, we're following Los Angeles plays itself. I think uh, Los Angeles because it hosted the Olympics in 1984. It was like you know people are gonna be having Olympic fever. They would totally be behind <laughs> behind this um, this crazy plot because uh, they they finally saw gymnastics. Yes. Yeah, it was originally, and this film was originally called Parmistan Plays Itself. They did change it, and I think that was a good call. Jimkata is a great name for it. It really sums it up. But I, but it, that would have been a good one, too. Where is the video essay on Parmistan? Who, yes. who will be the first to develop that three-hour YouTube essay? I mean, obviously me. The answer is it will be me someday <laughs> when I have a lot of time on my hands, when I'm retired someday, hopefully. That's what I'll be doing. What was, so I asked at the top of the show, uh, Brian and myself about like, you know, early intros to to critics. Your book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. What's your backstory with kind of like film criticism and and then also Siskel and Ebert? Well, it all started with Jim Cotta and my love of, of reviews of Jim Cotta. Now, uh, so for me, my love of film criticism, absolutely, you know, directly you can trace it right back to watching Siskel and Ebert as a, as a kid and finding that show and then becoming weirdly obsessed at like 12, 13 years old with that show and it being appointment television for me at that age. And then just watching it and watching it. And it was, you know, I was hanging out as we've established on AOL uh, message boards for, you know, Seinfeld and Star Trek and stuff. But I wasn't like, uh, you, you couldn't, as bizarre as it sounds now, I'm sure, to someone who's younger, like you couldn't just type into Google Roger Ebert review of The Godfather and just read it on your computer. That did not exist. You couldn't read any of his reviews unless you bought his books, which I did. You know, that was the other thing that I, the next thing, I guess you could say, after watching or getting into the show, then I would say, go to Barnes & Noble or whatever and say, oh, mm. look, there's Roger Ebert's I hated, hated, hated this movie. Roger Ebert's questions for the movie Answer Man. And then after that, there was, you know, Roger Ebert's great movies, which, you know, I read those and would watch the movies in them, you know, like like a checklist almost, checking off movies that I hadn't seen before. 
you know, I would take it to Blockbuster or I would look at it, then write down movies I wanted to look for at Blockbuster and hope that their classic section, which was abysmal, might have a couple of the things in there mm-hmm. that I could watch because this is before streaming and all of those things as well. So yeah, that was that was really uh, where it all started. I mean, even, I was I watched movies obviously, but I wasn't like a huge a movie nerd before that. Or as like a little kid, I wasn't mm-hmm. like d- demanding my my parents drive me at the age of ten to like an art house cinema. Like yeah. it all like it was the show really that got me into all of those things. Everything that came out of that in a weird way, like I. I don't even know why I was so into the show, to be honest with you. Like, because I wasn't, you know, uh, a, a, a gigantic movie nerd at that age. I was more into like Seinfeld and comic books and, and things like that. But something about Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, you even mentioned that too in the book about how Ebert was the same way. He he didn't grow up that kind of film nerd, film nut until, you know, that position opened up uh, and he was able to to become the the film critic for the paper. So I thought that was fascinating as well. I mean, that is true. And Siskel, same way. Neither one of them uh, had grand designs of being uh, 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 film critics for anyone, much less on television. You know, they, same thing. They liked movies as kids. And there are interesting episodes of the show where they talk about the movies that inspired them as kids and that they were obsessed with as kids. And there's some overlap between them, which is kind of interesting. They were both big fans of the Houdini movie, Tony Curtis's mm. Houdini, for different reasons. But um, yeah, they grew up with sort of totally different goals at that age. Ebert, you know, was super into writing and journalism. And, you know, he had a newspaper that he made in his house on this toy printing press when he was still in like grade school and he would hand yeah. it out to people on his street. And then he worked at, um, the News Gazette in Urbana, you know, he, he wasn't working at his high school's paper in high school. He's working at the local actual newspaper while he was in high school. And he won an AP sports writing award at that age. And then he was the editor of the Daily Illini at the University of Illinois. And, mm-hmm. and then he was he was going to um, the University of Chicago to get a PhD, I think, in English. And he was basically supporting himself by writing for the Sun-Times. And he had written a few pieces that were about movies, features, interviews, that kind of thing. And the um, the film critic at the time retired. This old lady by the name of Eleanor Keene retired. And they wanted, this is the, this is 1967. It is like, you know, all of a sudden the new Hollywood thing is happening. It's suddenly starting to kind of come into bloom. And... Movies are hip, and they wanted a younger film critic, and the publicist for Warner Brothers in Chicago recommended him to the editor, said uh, he, that, 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 that publicist liked something Ebert had written about some Warner Brothers movie, and said, that's the guy, you should give him the job. And that was it. He didn't, he did not uh, study film in college. He, there were no film studies classes to take in college. Yeah. And that was, that was for him, that was it. And Siskel, you know, uh, somewhat similarly, did, you know, did not have that as his, his grand design. He kind of wanted to be a lawyer a lot of his young life. And he only came to journalism later when he was in the Army Reserve. And he had a choice between, like, driving a truck or learning how to do journalism. And he's like, I'll, I'll do the journalism. And so he learned the basics of news writing and paste ups and things like that. And he got he got the bug at that point. And then when he got back to Chicago after 
you know, serving in the reserve. He basically just walked in off the street to the Tribune and said, "I, you know, here's my resume. I want a job. And he got a job. And then uh, in that case, he did a kind of campaign to be the film critic when their film critic, uh, this guy named Clifford Terry, was leaving on a sabbatical to do a fellowship at uh, Harvard, I believe. Mm. And the Tribune's plan, the Chicago Tribune's plan was, well, we'll just have whoever write reviews for the year he's gone. Whoever's available that week, they'll write the review. And Siskel was like, well, I could do that job. I want it. And he wrote a letter and uh, explained that he should get the job. He slipped it under the editor's door one night uh, on his way out of, uh, you know, out of the office, figured that was the end of it, came in the next day, uh, was called into a meeting, and they said, all right, you got the job. And it sounds fanciful, but I found an article where, you know, years and uh, later, someone went in his personnel file and found the letter that he had submitted. Wow. It was still in his Chicago Tribune personnel file, like decades later, this Jeez. letter that he had written to uh, explain why he should get the job. And it worked. He got the job. And when Clifford Terry came back from his uh, uh, sabbatical, he did not get his old job back. Siskel kept it from then on. Um, I was, uh, when I was 18 years old, a little bit of a child prodigy, I was a film critic for uh, the local paper in Spokane, Washington. My parents had moved north. Um, and so I wrote for the Spokesman Review, which uh, server, served, uh, serviced Spokane and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Spokane, Washington and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And it was, that was so long ago that there's literally no digital record. You'd have to go, you would have to go, um, you'd have to go to the Spokane library to look up those or come over to my Micro house where, I, where they've all turned, they've all yellowed over time, and I, <laughs> but I have them all in a file. And I, it took me a little while to decide what I wanted to do. And I came back around to doing this. Um, but I, I moved to Tennessee and I wanted to do, to go to university and study creative writing. And I wanted to do the same thing there, but Betsy, Betsy Pickle had that job on lockdown. And so <laughs> that, then that ended, ended for, ended for a period. And then I got into rock and roll for a long time and then came back around. But the, we're, I like that we're mentioning actual uh, local film critics' names because I think that that's something that is one of the most unfortunate things about what um, digital media has kind of taken from us. You mentioned the Village Voice, and I think like the not even just the local papers, but the local weeklies. Uh, I, 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 I mentioned up top like how I how I engaged with film criticism, but I do think that Siskel and Ebert, while you can say like oh that became like what Rotten Tomatoes is and Rotten Tomatoes is, is bad. But I don't think, well, I don't think either of those things are true. I think that Rotten Tomatoes isn't necessarily inherently bad tool, but it's, it's a tool that rewards laziness. And as we all know, like the digital space, uh, if something, if we can make something lazy where we just look at a score and don't engage with any of the reviews under, I think that that has changed the way that people engage with criticism entirely and that now everyone wants to read reviews after they've seen something so it can like either reinforce their opinion or explain things more. But I, Siskel and Ebert was a great recommendation tool and the local papers were a great recommendation tool and especially the alternative weeklies to highlight uh, older films that uh, might be, might be rolling through or just, 
I guess that's the segue question of like through through reading and kind of saying what you've uh, said about their history. Uh, how do you feel about where film criticism is now, or and like what do you angle reviews and write ups to try to be more for people to read after they've seen it, where it's more like the essay as opposed to like the consumer's report? Well, I think you kind of, per, me, me personally, if you want my, what I do, it's generally kind of, depending on the movie, it's probably both. Because there are people who want, you know, and this is something that's even more now than certainly in the days of Siskel and Eber. People are, you know, uh, very fixated on spoilers to an extent that they were, generally speaking, they were not. And you can watch which I watched so many episodes of the show, you can watch shows where they'll just, they'll, they'll say like, well, we don't want to give it away. And then they will give away the plots of movies, the endings of movies. Um, and and it doesn't ever seem to kind of come back and bite them on the tuchuses the way mm. it would for the average Joe critic today where people are so deranged about some spoilers. So I what I try to do is I do try to write for an audience that at least is wary about spoilers. And then if I think that there is something worth going in depth about, then I'll write a second piece. I mean, that's kind of a nice thing about the internet is there's theoretically no, there's no amount of writing that you could write to, you know, if there's people who are interested in reading it or you're interested in printing it, you could write a hundred pieces about Killers of the Flower Moon. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there, that. That's that's a great thing. How I feel about the state of criticism in general. I mean, as a profession, maybe not so great as a, as a thing that... Uh, people make a living at. And as you said, there were all these great, talented, interesting, clever, smart local critics. So many of them have kind of, as they've faded away, like their jobs, they were not replaced. Um, And that's a real shame. But on the other hand, there are, you know, like if you just like reading criticism or listening to criticism, watching criticism in the form of a lengthy documentary about Los Angeles and movies. Like there's, there's more places, more people, more interesting perspectives than ever before. And I mean, Letterboxd is a perfect example of that. You know, this, this place where, you know, anyone could write whatever they want about anything they see. And if it's someone you're interested in, you can just follow along with everything they do. Um, I would have, I mean, and in those days, you know, like when I'm watching Siskel and Ebert as a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old and I'm like getting first interested, like I would have, first of all, thank God that it didn't exist because if if my writings at that time had existed, Mm -hmm. I would have had to, I would have to destroy the entirety of the internet to prevent anyone from seeing them. But I would have loved that as a kid, this idea that I could write whatever I wanted and I could have my opinion and perhaps, you know, have people reading what I write, interacting with p- other people that I like, um, which, at, again, at that time was a very remote thing. Like, you could write Roger Ebert a fan letter, and he actually would respond to people, uh, you know, like, uh, I know examples of that. And Or you could write to the movie Answer Man column. You could send him a question, and he might answer it, which I did on several occasions. And he answered two of my questions over mm-hmm. the years, as a matter of fact. So if you go back and look for answers to Matt S. from, you know, Marlboro NJ, or I think one of them was while I was in school. So one of them is at Syracuse NY. But yeah, two different times he printed uh, my my questions. He answered my questions. But um, yeah, I, 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 I it is the sort of thing where you feel, you don't feel all that optimistic about people making a living doing criticism, but 
I mean, I I listen to so many podcasts and I read so many people that I like to read about film. It's hard to be like cynical about that side of it. Uh, you know, the 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 financial side, the logistical side, that realistic side, you could be pretty cynical about. But um it's you know, like the idea that um Film criticism is going to go away. That I, I mean, there's more interesting things to read and listen to and watch than ever before. I, I firmly, firmly believe that. The the one thing I was going to bring up before we move on to Steely Dan. I know people are waiting for the Steely Dan segment. It's right around the corner. Two things. I loved hearing them go through how initially on the show they used to rehearse all those things in their conversations and they do multiple takes like oh my god i would die and then they eventually started doing first takes and it just flowed so much better for them but then also when ebert was on carson with siskel when chevy chase was there to promote three amigos and ebert man he got he had balls like on carson to say that it was not a good movie and that was like his pick his like dog of the week I mean, there's not a lot of people, you, you know, you can talk crap on Letterboxd, but I mean, I don't even know if I would say that to Chevy Chase, let alone on Johnny Carson to say that it's not a good movie. <laughs> the worst, the worst Christmas movie of the year was what he I know. Said. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So just endless props to be able to have that kind of, you know, wherewithal to, to stay, to stay true to yourself. Next on our list, classic albums, Steely Dan, Asia. 1999, this came out. Alan Lewin's 3.8 average on Letterboxd. Asia was the biggest selling album of Steely Dan's career, reaching number three on the US Billboard chart and number five in the UK. Uh, this is a portrait of the making of this 1977 jazz rock album. Uh, I had never, oh, I'm trying to think of how I say this. I wish every album has like these kind of making of you know, sit downs and goes through the people who made the album and interview the people who made it. To be honest, I thought I found this fascinating going back and rewatching and hearing the two men who really constructed the album in front of the mixing board, listening to various versions of the album that did or did not make it. So, Matt, uh, t- talk to us about this Steely Dan Asia making of. So, well, you, uh, saying that you wish there were more. There are more. I mean, it is like, this is actually like a TV show that um, existed. I guess it still kind of exists. Like, they still make them infrequently. Um, so there are other ones, and you can watch them. I watched, I've watched. i watched a bunch of them on Tubi, Tubi I think I saw them on. Mm. The great Tubi, the strangest streaming service in Tubi the universe. Tubi Army, rise up. <laughs> um, they have this one, or at least a month or two ago, they had this one, and they had a whole bunch of them, which I watched. But this is like far and away the best, the best one, and it's not just because I'm Steely Dan is the greatest al- uh, band of all time in Asia. Is you know <laughs> one of their masterpieces. Um, I, I think that the particular pleasure in this case is that you know uh, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker were notoriously. Um, What's the nice way of putting this? They were uh, they were very focused on the the sound of their um, of their albums. Uh, by this point in their career, and they had basically dismissed the rest of the band. There was a, at one point a band, Steely Dan, that had like six guys, and they toured and they did concerts. But by this point, they had gotten rid of everyone but themselves, Fagan and Pecker, and they were. They had become like creatures of the studio and they would spend years working on these albums. 
perfecting every little itsy bitsy note. And, you know, and it was before these things were very easy to perfect with digital tools and they're doing all this analog. And so to, to have them, you know, it's almost like the equivalent of a director's commentary, essentially, where they're going through, they go through every track on the album and they talk about, you know, the inspiration. And like you said, they're, for a lot of it, they're sitting at a mixing board where they're, <laughs> they're, they're criticizing themselves. They're criticizing <laughs> their colleagues. They uh, pick apart, you know, the, there's um, the famous guitar solo in Peg that I think ultimately was performed by Jay Graydon. They had a lot of, basically the band became them plus lots of session musicians and they would just bring in whoever they thought would be good for any particular song, any particular part. And if they they thought they did a crappy job, they'd say, thanks, goodbye. And they would, so they had all these like, in that example in the movie, like you could hear them like, listen to the other like discarded guitar solos from Peg and they're horrible and they're making fun of, they don't say who performed them, but they're just like, yeah, well that pretty much speaks for itself. Uh, that was a, <laughs> yes, that and was, it was like very matter of fact about it too. <laughs> yes. And then they play, then they play the Jay Graydon solo and you're like, okay, well, yes, ob- this is, this is why this was the winner. This is so much better. And they, and they pick apart bass lines and drum parts and they interview the members of the band or the session musicians that did all these things. And so you get their insights as well. And um, I, uh, I, I do love Steely Dan and I love, I, I will put this on, I think I've logged it maybe two or three times on Letterboxd, but I've watched it. I just put it on sometimes and I have it running in the background because it's like the best background thing to watch because I, at this point I know it, well enough that I don't have to pay attention, but then like, oh, here comes the part with Michael McDonald where he's going to, they're going to isolate his vocals on Peg and he's going to, you're going to hear him sing Peg and you're going (laughs) to hear him doing all of his different (laughs) harmonies with himself and have him like talking about doing it. It's, uh, it's magical. It's absolutely magical. You mentioned like they're not perfectionists. They even say that. I think one of them says, we're not after perfection. We're after something you want to listen to. It was like their interpretation of their almost perfectionism, I thought was was a pretty keen insight into their psyche. Yeah. I wanted to know, so, because I was looking up, okay, there are 10 fans of classic albums, Steely Dan, Asia. Do you know if you... Were you the first, and then you kind of assembled a little little 10-person army, a little band, or... Was it at zero or was there one? Did you? I know? don't. Re- I don't remember. Th- I feel like if that had been the case, I would remember it. So I don't think I was the first. No. Um, <laughs> uh, but it certainly, yeah, it was a, certainly a very low number. Whenever, whatever it was, it was a low number. But I, I, uh, I, I, I love, I love, I love it. So I, you know, I don't care if more people watch it. Uh, that's that's great. It, to me, it's like one of the most like watchable. It's only an hour long. Um, they go through every song, you know, they play some stuff with a band live, you know, it's like, it's like, what if behind the music was like, good, really good. Like, I guess behind the music is good too, but like, what if behind the music was really nerdy and about like, yeah, like the sound of a, of a hi-hat and, and like the different ways of playing a bass and slapping bass versus, you know, fretting or what all these, it's like, Mm -hmm. uh, it's 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 wonderful. The only problem with it is that there isn't a sequel where where they talk about Gaucho. That's the only that's the only reason I can the only flaw I can find. 
it uh it made me f- feel like this is the closest I'll be to be like on a David Fincher set. <laughs> the, 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 the number of takes and mm-hmm. like the precision around everything. Like I could see um I mean my music background is more it's stuff that like feels like it's going to be falling apart every second. And I do think it's very, and that's like how uh, that's the space that I was in like rock and roll for before and very DIY and grungy. And it is kind of nice to see like actual process as opposed to just, um, just like ramshackle sloppiness, um, Mm. which is maybe it would be my memoir title, but uh, the, <laughs> you brought up uh, behind the music, and th- this will, I'll say this to take us as a segue into into our next film. But this just uh, it took me back to a place to watch this movie, which was when I was in a hospital for a few days, and I felt like I was losing my mind, and the only way that I could stay sane was watching every episode of Behind the Music that was available. <laughs> going through and it was a uh, this type of thing it's uh yeah great great for hospitals they should just they should just play in there <laughs> i like behind the music i shouldn't i shouldn't impugn behind the music i watched a lot of that in my day but this is just a superior it's like a more purified form less less uh drama more yeah. nerdery less salacious po- yes yeah. less salacious more process uh, the Diving Bell and the Butterflies, our final movie from 2007, 4.1 average. Let your imagination set you free. The true story of an L. France editor who, in 1995 and at the age of 43, suffered a stroke that paralyzed his entire body except his left eye. Using that eye to blink out his memoir, he eloquently described the aspects of his interior world from the psychological torment of being trapped inside his body to his imagined stories from lands he'd only visited in his mind. This was a first time watch for me. I'd never seen this movie before. I was pretty blown away by this viewing, to be honest. I was stunned. Matt, talk talk to us about this film. So this is on here because, uh, well, I should say that this is like the least watched of the four favorites here. Like I've probably seen this movie, like, you know, I've seen Los Angeles Plays itself, I don't know, eight times. I've seen Gymkata 4,000 times. I've watched classic album Steely Dan Asia, you know, maybe a hundred times or something. This movie I've probably seen three times, maybe, maybe, definitely twice, probably three times, but I haven't rewatched it in a long time. But it has a very um, extra textual place in my heart, almost beyond the movie. I mean, the movie is very important to it, but it's it's like this movie is more than a movie to me. And this, the reason is I saw this movie in 2007 at a press screening, and I thought it I thought it was like overwhelmingly powerful. Uh, and I walked out of the theater, and I decided that on the spot, as I walked out of the theater, I was going to propose to my girlfriend. Like, um, this was the movie that made me, uh, decide to do that. Um, which if you've seen it, it kind of makes sense. It's sort of a movie about, you know, uh, enjoying what you have while you have it and making the most of, of life. And, uh, I like, I literally recall, like I walked out of the theater and I start, like I called someone I knew who knew like a, 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 a jeweler who made diamond rings I was like, yeah, I need, I need that guy. Cause we had probably, he had probably mentioned it. Cause I had, you know, we, my, my now wife, still wife, uh, had been dating for a long time. So it probably had come up like where this 
a colleague of mine had been like, you know, if you ever need, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I'm sure at that point was like, nope, I'm good. Thanks. Don't eat, you know, don't, whatever. Um, I came out of the theater and I called him up and said, all right, give me that number. I need it right now. Wow. Um, it had that sort of, uh, effect and, you know, um, when a movie can, can change your life in a concrete way for the better, uh, that's pretty special. And so, um, you know, like I said, I have, I have rewatched it, but it's not, it's not, I mean, it's, it's not an easy film to watch. It's not exactly uh, a laugh riot. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's not something that like I can describe individual moments or scenes, but what I can describe is what I just did. The feeling that I felt walking out of this movie, which was a transformative. It really was that this idea that, you know, it was like there was a before and an after of having seen this movie in my life and having to do, do something immediately after having seen it. And uh, I'm not a person who enjoys change. I hate change in all forms, in every form, and I resist it as much as I humanly can, possibly can. <laughs> so for a movie to inspire me to, to do something, that's even more, like it means even more in that sense. So that is, that's why this movie is, will always be uh, a favorite film of mine, has a very special place in my heart. Did it inspire change in you, Brian? How did you feel after you watched it? Uh, so I saw this back in 2007 when it was released and I hadn't seen it since. Um, I definitely remembered the, I mean, Janu, Janu Kaminsky's cinematography and this is just like God tier in my, in mm-hmm. my opinion. And I specifically always remembered the sewing of the eye shut. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and I, and I, and I recalled the, one of the final shots of him, of him driving, it has like stuck in my brain for a long time, but this time uh, when I watched it, it hit me differently because I mean, I've, I've lived longer. Uh, I'm married. I'm now like entering the year of life that his stroke occurred. Um, there's, there's more in my brain that can, that I can, that can occupy my time. There's more to lose. There's more to regret. There's, there's just, more of everything. So this hit me harder, but one thing that hit me substantially differently, uh, although I don't remember (laughs) how I felt other than loving the visuals when I originally had seen it, I I know that I would not have had this thought uh, back in 2007, but I was thinking of, you know, the patience of these, like this, these saintly women who are helping, helping him learn how to communicate, move his tongue, uh, dictate his writing. My my wife has been in a caretaker role for her mother, not not as not as bad badly as this. Uh, but when I did propose to her, one thing that she <laughs> not that there was like a list of reasons like why I'm saying yes, but she did say, you know, a little like part one of the reasons she wanted to get married is the patience that I showed with her mother, which I've been in short supply of recently, and I think that that this film kind of made me reposition of like the kind of self, a little more selfishness that I've had around caretaking and time mm. and like how, how I love that it was like, cause it's from his point of view, things that annoyed him prior, like um, his, his girl, his mistresses, his girlfriend's uh, religion, how when he's being taken care of by these, these women, even though he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't feel religious. He sees them as qualities uh, that 
he can respect because it's actually informing their niceties to him. So it's like, instead of dismissing that part of them, it's something that at least through like the way he describes things uh, that they dictate that he's able to revere and reflect back. Um, and I know that uh, Slim, Slim pointed out one thing from his, his review. So I just wanted to, last time Slim and I were on a podcast, we were talking about the exorcist. So uh, the, the Max Vancito scene, I know struck you oh hard. God. That scene with him talking to his dad later in the movie, like literally knocked me over. I couldn't believe the power in that scene. Like it probably wouldn't have, you know, echoing Brian's comments, it probably wouldn't have had such an impact if I had seen this maybe like 13 years ago. You know, my son's going to be 13 in December. And there's just so much emotion in that scene. So many layers of, you know, the father... Like, I, if I was in the father's position, I don't know what the F I would feel. Like, you're just so conflicted with so many emotions. Like, your own son is paralyzed and can only and can only communicate through blinks. Like, the powerlessness of that would just be, like, absolutely crippling to me. So, it's, we talked about it, but, like, it's a very powerful movie. I highly recommend people check it out. You know, you'll, you'll come through with a different mindset. I mean, some of the scenes, another scene that was powerful I mean, so many, but when he's talking with on the phone, like his, you know, mistress current lover calls while his ex is there kind of dictating for her over the phone. And she, as of yet, has not visited him in the hospital yeah. and she has to relay that information. Like, good Lord. Um, there was a review that did quote a scene from the movie from Emily, I decided to stop pitying myself. Other than my eye, two things aren't paralyzed, my imagination and my memory. And Emily writes, I love this so much, we'll definitely be reading his memoir. So, I mean, it's based on a true story. Like, this this memoir is out there. Um, this is probably one of the most powerful movies that we've talked about on Four Faves, to be honest, Matt. So this is a great, great pick. I hope other people check it out. Yeah, it's not an it's not an easy sit. Like as we're as you're hearing it, it's an intense experience. But it's a it is a powerful powerful movie, and I, I like the you know like the, the mention of the the god tier uh, cinematography. You know, <laughs> yeah. it has this amazing uh, like first person perspective camera work that is really incredible. And and you know, I I've never read that memoir in part because I almost feel like the movie does such an incredible job of of putting you inside the mind and the perspective of of the character that it uh, I, I don't feel like I need like I I I I can't imagine an, um a book doing that as well maybe it does but I've never felt the the need to like read it because I it's so the visceral experience of it I mean it is to tie it back to Siskel and Ebert you know Ebert's famous quote about movies as as machines that build empathy and allow us to to you know, um, experience the world through the eyes of other people. Like that's literally what happens in the diving bell and the butterfly. Like this movie does that uh, more effectively, more, more directly than almost any movie I can think of. Um, and yeah, like I always, I always get, he, he doesn't make a lot of movies, Julian Schnabel, the director, but I always get excited because you know, whatever they're about, there's always like moments like that, you know, like there was some, um, subjective camera work in in at Eternity's Gate, which I have only seen once. Uh, but I but again, like when and when it happens, like that's my 
Leonardo DiCaprio pointing meme. It's like when there's a Julian Schnabel movie and you get to the point where you get inside the perspective and the head, the mind of whatever the main character is. That's for me, that's, that's the good stuff. That's what I go to a Schnabel film to see. It's like to experience the world through the eyes of another person. Uh, I, I really think that, uh, that, that movie, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly in particular, does that really, really well. And it is special for that. Our guest today was Matt Singer, and you can find him on Letterboxd, and you can buy his book using the links in the episode notes. Highly recommend both. Thanks to production manager Sophie Shannon, to Sam for the art, and to Moniker for the theme music. Just maybe consider leaving us a rating. Thumbs up, thumbs up on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it helps spread the word about the show. You can always drop us a line at letterbox.com as well. We love mail. The Letterbox Show is a tape deck production. And stay tuned for Brian's eight-hour essay rebuttal on LA. On and also, pick up... Uh, Roger Ebert's I hate, 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 hate that hated this movie because Jim Cotta is in there. <laughs> 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 Everyone forgot to bring that up. <laughs>